I'm going to be preaching from 1 Samuel chapter 16. So if you have a Bible or a phone uh, or something, don't you want to open it up um, so you can see where, um, where I'm getting some of this stuff from as we, uh, as we dive in and look at what God is going to be uh, hopefully saying to us tonight. This is the, this, this is the account of the, uh, the anointing of King David, if you are familiar with the Bible and Christianity, if you're not, then uh, I'll do my best to fill in some of the blanks in the story and piece it together for you, give you some of the context, but uh, unfortunately I won't be able to do all of it justice uh, tonight, um, but I trust that the Lord will speak to you um, still as we go through this. I'm going to read this, First uh, Samuel 16 from verse 1 to verse 13, and then I'm going to pray for us as we um, long to hear from the Lord this evening. Let's uh, read. Get together. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord, the Lord said to Samuel, <coughs> How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, how, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Let's pray together. Father, we are so 
grateful for the, uh, the gift of your word. We thank you that you have not only spoken, but you continue to speak because your word is a living word. And it speaks into the depths of who we are. It can do in us what nothing else can. And we want to declare this evening that what we most need and what we most long for is to hear the voice of the living God. The Father who loves us would speak over our lives and speak into our lives and shape us and form us by the word. And we acknowledge that we are not intelligent enough to see what we need to see. As we, we don't come to study your word, we come to hear your voice. And so I pray that as I speak, we would hear your voice. That the living God, you would speak amongst us, that you would give us ears to hear. You would give us hearts to receive. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who you promised to us, who would lead us into all truth, who would teach us, who would remind us. And so we look to you now, Father, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst us to bring your word to life in our hearts, in our hearing, that we would be encouraged, we would be convicted, we would be transformed now as you speak to us through the Holy Spirit and that you would do these things for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There uh, is... Obviously, when you come to the anointing of King David, um, the anointing of David is the central part of this, of this passage, um, and we will spend time looking at that. But as I've spent um, time in this passage and preparing, there are there's some things that I, I saw for the first time with fresh eyes in this passage, and I wanted to, I wanted to share them with you and highlight them and bring them to your attention because I feel like... Uh, I was deeply encouraged by um, the Lord revealing these things and, and showing them to me, and I pray that you will be encouraged and, and <clears throat> stirred and possibly rebuked or whatever. The Lord will do different things amongst uh, different people that are here because uh, he knows what you need uh, to hear. And we will move through this passage. We're actually going to start with Samuel and then, um, and then have a look at David. And there are, there are two things particularly I want you to see uh, with Samuel, I'll give you some context uh, quickly of what's, what's happening uh, in the, I don't like to call it a story, because a story is a loaded uh, word, isn't it? When I say like this story, like people think like this is like a story, like Enid Blyton is a story, or do you know who Enid Blyton is? I, is she English? Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> you should be asking me, do I know who Enid Blyton is? But uh, it's not a story in that sense, like oh, Pinocchio, like this is an account. So I interchange between the word story and account. This is an account of something that actually happened. It's not a make-believe story. But anyway, in the, in the story, in the account here, what has been happening is that uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, um, has had some up and downs throughout his reign. And he's got to a point where the Lord has given him specific instructions, very, very clear instructions, which he has obeyed some and disobeyed others. <clears throat> and as a, as a culmination of those things, as a result, the Lord has rejected Saul as the king. 
He's rejected Saul and uh, you know, the, I, don't, I don't have to make apologies for the Bible. The end of the previous chapter ends with Samuel chopping up King Agag, which was Saul, what Saul was supposed to do. And the Lord rejects Saul as king and tells Samuel this. He says, I've rejected this man as the king. Samuel is God's prophet. He is, he is, he was at the at one time the judge, the leader of the nation. He's a man who deeply loves the people of God. He has the heart of a shepherd for his people. And you find him at the beginning of chapter 16 here, grieving the loss of Saul as the king, grieving this king, being rejected by God, and wondering what's going to happen to God's people. They have a king now who the Lord has rejected. What will, what will happen to them? And uh, there you see it in verse 1. The Lord comes to Samuel and says, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? You find, um, you find this, this, this dejected um, prophet sitting. We don't know exactly what was going on, but the Lord sort of comes to him and says, hey, how, how long are you just going to sit there mourning for this guy. We're not sure of all the layers of this. I don't want to read too much into it. Whether his mourning, his grief is more for the people, more for Saul, more for how he had hoped this whole thing would have turned out. This is the first time God's people had had a king. But he's sitting there and he's mourning and the Lord has to come to him and speak to him and get him, almost like shake him awake and out of his, his grief and uh, his disappointment. And this is, the, this is the first thing that we see in Samuel is, is grief and disappointment tinged together on how things have turned out. Maybe he had had high hopes for Saul. Saul had been a real up and, up and down king, but maybe Samuel had just thought, maybe I can turn his heart more. Maybe I can get him just to be the kind of king that the people need. And now the Lord has fully and finally rejected Saul, you know, you find Samuel just grieving over this. And as I looked at this, I thought, I've, there's so much that I resonate with in this. The, 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 how, how debilitating grief can be. How debilitating disappointment can be about how things have turned out. How it can cause you to stop in your tracks. And if you haven't walked with the Lord for long, uh, here is an advertisement a trailer about what's going to happen down the road. What will happen as you walk with the Lord is that the Lord in his sovereign kindness will allow things to happen in your life that you won't choose. You would have your life turn out differently. You will want to avoid particular sufferings or hardships or struggles and they will come your way because the Lord loves you and there are things that he can do in your life that he can only do through those patches of suffering and difficulty because he knows best and you don't. And when you hit those points, you will have options of what to do and one will be to doubt his goodness and kindness and love for you and his sovereign power and love over your life and to get stuck and disappointed in how and what God has allowed to come into your life. And I know there's enough of us here that potentially some of you this evening, this is all you came here to hear, that the Lord loves you, that he is good and he does good, and what he has allowed to happen in your life is for your good. He is not punishing you. He is not punishing you. 
He is evidencing his kindness and his faithfulness and his love and his patience in your life. I know, I know you may not feel it and you may not see it even now, but that is God as he has revealed himself to us to be. And it's possible to get so grief-stricken and so disappointed in what God has allowed into your life that you get stuck and you no longer are able to move forward and participate in the plans that God has for your life. And it's different for different people. You, you may be so disillusioned, disappointed that God has you still single. Maybe you're disappointed and disillusioned around how marriage has turned out. You couldn't wait to get married and, and now you're married and now you, you almost long to be single again. Uh, no, none of you are going to say that out loud, obviously. Um, you know, maybe you thought parenthood would just be different. I mean, this is a younger crowd. Maybe you thought like, hey, can't wait to have kids and then you've had the kids and you're like, well, that was, that's different to how we thought this would go down, you know? Um, th there's different things. Maybe you thought you'd be further along the, the road with the Lord. You wouldn't still be struggling over the same sin issues. You know, it's just again and again, you just seem to fall flat on your face. You've cried out to the Lord, Lord, move me, help me, give me this. And somehow there just hasn't been that change. And you're just disillusioned and grief-stricken and you're not moving. And I want to encourage you today, and as it were, as the, as the Lord comes to Samuel, come to you and remind you that the Lord loves you. And that he, you're, he's not wasting anything that he is allowing in your life. That, he, that he, his kindness is upon your life. His face is towards you. And, and, and pray for you tonight that God would give you new eyes to see your own life and the circumstance that you're in. And to not just accept, but to delight in, in what God is doing in shaping your life. Friends, you weren't built for comfort. You weren't built for comfort. You were built for Christ-likeness. And if you settle for comfort, you will never get to Christ-likeness. As I was reflecting on this, uh, we are coming up to 10 years of our church plant. I thought planting a church would be the funnest thing I ever get to do. It turns out that planting a church is actually way tougher than I thought it would be. Some people warned me, but I think I was, I was young and enthusiastic, uh, and I didn't want to believe them that it would be really tough. And um, as I was reflecting on this, as we've been thinking over the last 10 years of our church, I was reminded by the Lord of some particularly difficult things. We had one experience in planting this church, which was particularly difficult for us, and I remember... Um, walking in these botanical gardens uh, not too far from, from where we live, wrestling with God and really doubting whether this was something the Lord wanted us to do and whether this was all worth it. We had been, we had gone through a very traumatic betrayal of our closest friends. You know, those kind of people that you think you're going to be besties for the resties, like life, you're going to do life together we were, they were our best mates, our kids were all best mates, you know, and we experienced a deep and painful betrayal, uh, and it was all around church. It, it was only because of us leading the church, and it caused me to go for long walks with the Lord and say, seriously, I don't know if I can keep doing this. If this is what it costs 
to faithfully follow you. I'm not sure I'm up for this. I want to have friends. <laughs> I know I'm not the like, easiest person to be friends with, but Lord, I'm sure there can be some people who want to be my mate. Like I want a couple of friends. I want my kids to have friends. I don't, want us, I don't want this to cost me and my kids. They don't understand. And wrestling with God, saying, is this honestly worth it? If it was up to me, this would have turned out completely differently. And I felt that at, 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 for a season um, incapacitated and stuck in my grief and my disillusionment and my disappointment over how God had allowed things to turn out. And I felt like that was a reminder for me, even reading this, um, the word of the Lord. And the Lord comes to Samuel and says what? How long? How long will you grieve over this? And friends, maybe that's what you need to hear this, this evening. How long? How long are you going to sit stuck, wishing your life had turned out differently, wishing that hadn't happened? Shaking your fist at God. I'm not talking about the genuine process of grief where we've gone through things and you really need to go through the process of grieving. You do need to go through those things depending on what you've been through. But we can get stuck there. We can get stuck there. And just sulk with God saying, oh, I'd hoped my life would have turned out differently. I'd hoped the situation would have turned out differently. And the Lord comes to him and says, Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over that man? Get up. Get up, take your anointing oil. I'm sending you. You've, I've still got work for you to do. I've still got work for you to do. You can't sit here sulking about what had happened, how you wished it would turn out. I've got stuff I need you to do. He comes to him and he shakes him. And then what does he do? He asks him to go to Jesse of Bethlehem and anoint one of those sons of his as the future king. And Samuel, there's his response. He says, are you? He doesn't say, are you crazy? But he's like, uh, yeah. uh, no, I don't want to go. D- Saul, if Saul finds out he's still the king, like functionally, and he still like, thinks he's the king, like if he finds out that I've gone and like, anointed another king, now I know what this guy's capable of. I, I've been around him. I, he's he's going to kill me. The, he, he's basically saying like, almost like a soft no to God. Like, yeah, maybe you can do the anointing in a different kind of a way but this is really not going to be a good thing. Um, and fear. This, the first one is grief and disillusionment, disappointment. The second is fear. If I obey you, God, what will it cost? What will it entail? What will, what will complete obedience to what God has asked him to do? Um, cost and God is incredibly gracious to him because he says, well, take an animal along, take a cow with you and and tell them you're going to have a sacrifice and consecrate these guys. And just, I'll, I'll explain to you what you need to do when you get there. But just, oh, I need you to go. Take that anointing oil and get cracking. Go. Uh, I, I, I will deal with your fear. I'll send you. I know you're afraid. But I've got like a, a plan that you can, you can take this cow along as like cover for the sacrifice so that you can accomplish the purposes and you can go. It's amazing how God in his tenderness works with um, Samuel's fear to get him to go. But fear can be an absolutely crippling thing. And I don't know, again, how many of you may be sitting here this morning, you know, or this evening, it's so light here. That's, that's what's messing with my head. It's so light. That it still feels like the morning uh, at an evening service. This uh, spring, English spring is tricky. Um, how many of you are sitting here and the Lord's been very clear with you? You know 
you know that the Lord's been pushing you in an area towards obedience, to following him, but you haven't taken the step, you haven't followed through because the cost is too high. You know what it's going to cost you or you think you know what it's going to cost you and you're afraid. You're afraid of the cost of relationships, the cost of reputation, the cost of discomfort, the cost of whatever. You've weighed it up and it's too, it's too costly. Friends, the Bible makes a compelling picture that obedience, God commands unquestioning obedience. That it's not about what it costs us. It can cost us everything and we are still called to obey. It could cost you your life. It could cost us our lives. There is still the call to ultimate obedience, to follow him, even in our fear. It's not like get over your fear, feel full of courage, and then off you go. It's like, no, just keep, just take a step. Just take the steps because if you know what he's called you to do, you have to, you have to do it. And I want to encourage you uh, this evening. If you, if you know, if the Holy Spirit is reminding you of something that you know the Lord has called you to, that you do new business with him again this evening and say, okay, Lord, I'm still afraid. I'm still afraid of what this is going to cost, but I will obey you. Friends, there's no other alternative to you tonight other than full obedience as a Christ follower to following in his ways. The Lord comes and speaks to Samuel and shakes him out of this debilitating grief and mourning over Saul, commissions him and deals and helps and encourages him in his fear. And then he sends him. And there's a wonderful line there. It says, and Samuel went to Bethlehem. He did it. He got up, he took the anointing oil and the cow and he went. He did what God asked him to do. And as he approaches Bethlehem, the elders of the town come out and they're like, um, they can see Samuel's coming. They know who Samuel is. Samuel wasn't in the, in the sort of business of doing routine checks on all the villages kind of thing. He's coming to Bethlehem. The elders know who he is. It's like, why is Samuel coming here? Like, send some guys out there. Go find out what's happening. You know, like, they're worried. They say, oh, do you come in peace? It's kind of like, is Samuel coming with one of these woe to Bethlehem things? Like, we are in trouble now. As Bethlehem, like here comes the man of God, the prophet of God, like this is not a good sign. So they're sending some guys out to find out, like, why are you coming here? Um, dude, like, you know, I, my, na- my name is actually Douglas. It's not Doug, but please call me Doug, because no one calls me Douglas, except my mother and one other random lady in our church. I'm not exactly sure why, but my full name is Douglas Michael. And I don't know if it was like that for you when you were growing up, but whenever I heard my mother call Douglas Michael, I knew things were about to go sideways, like very quickly. Like she only ever called me Douglas Michael in that special tone. Like she wasn't like, oh, that. Just like I gave you all those names. I may as well just use them. You know, I chose them for you. It's like, no, I knew in advance, like Douglas Michael going to be in trouble kind of thing and I think the, the elders of Bethlehem are sending, them out, sending the guys out there like Samuel's coming like are we like being called to the principal's office is this going to about to go pear-shaped for us and he's like no I'm coming in peace let's have a sacrifice kind of thing and they do all the consecrating the sacrifice and then what happens Jesse brings Eliab his oldest most impressive son and he stands before Samuel and if you've never felt akin with uh, uh, someone in the scriptures, 
watch how uh, an old, seasoned, godly man still needs to learn things. Standing before uh, Samuel is Eliab, and what does he think? Surely the Lord's anointed is standing before us. This guy is a shoo-in. This must be the king. He has just, not long before, experienced the, the rejection of, of God, of Saul, whose Saul was an impressive dude, head and shoulders above people. That's partly why he got selected the king, impressive looking dude. And he saw that an outward appearance is no substitute for inward character and godliness. And he saw the whole thing go sideways. Now he's sent off to appoint a new king. Before him stands a wonderful specimen of a human being. And he's so impressed with the outward appearance, he thinks, surely this is the guy. He hasn't learned anything yet about what the Lord's about to teach him. To say, no, no, no. This one, I've rejected him. And what does he say? Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. This is what I want us to look at for the rest of our time. How does the Lord see? What does he look at and what do we look at? Well, let's start with what we look at. Simple there. Humans see what is visible. When we are wondering if someone's impressive, we look at outward things. Our eyes lie to us. And Samuel's eyes lie to him. Here is Eliab. Surely this is the guy. And one son after the next, they go through and it's none of them. And he's like, okay, well, the, I was sent here to anoint one of the sons. This is all the, this is all the sons. I mean, I've, we've run out of sons. He's like, don't you have any more? He's like, oh, yeah, we do have one. But man, he's so unimpressive. He's so young. Basically, he's a shepherd out in the fields. Like, we didn't think seriously. Like, you're not going to... You know, we don't invite him to these kinds of things. Like, he's a shepherd, you know, he's not much, not very impressive. And he ends up, you know, ruining the movie. He ends up being the guy because the Lord sees something in David that nobody else could see. And as you, as you enter into the story, we're reminded that as human beings, we are obsessed with appearance. We are a people, we are a culture obsessed with the way things appear. We're obsessed with how people appear physically. You don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to be on the cutting edge of culture to know this. It's everywhere. Every advertisement, every magazine. They don't put average looking people on the covers of magazines, do they? Maybe on the covers of farming magazines or something like that. The, it doesn't matter. Like it can be old, you know, Pete there in his in his court brookies, his shorts there, because he's talking about whatever the millies or whatever. But you know, almost every magazine that you can think of is is they're just beautiful people, airbrushed, fake looking, built. We celebrate beautiful. I don't have another hand. Beautiful people, the appearance. The world around us celebrates it. The world around us applauds the people who keep themselves looking fit and strong and beautiful. And there's this collision now that the older you get, if you're able to maintain uh, your beauty. You know, I, I was reading something about it. It was like a mid-60s lady 
who had been in CrossFit for ages. I mean, she, she didn't look mid-60s. Let's just be straight up about this. Like, she was all ripped and whatever else. And everyone was just fawning over this lady. Like, wow, amazing. Look at you, mid-60s. I mean, she is like more ripped than I've ever been in my entire life kind of thing. I'm like, That's, this is something weird happening here. But everyone just thinking, amazing. We celebrate people like that. The older you get, if you can stay fit and stuff, you're a marvel. But it's all an obsession with what you look like. We are obsessed with what we look like and we are obsessed with what other people look like. The amount of operations, the plastic surgery operations, the amount of money spent on anti-aging skin creams and stuff as if looking older was the worst thing that can possibly ever happen to you. People will shell out all of their pounds to put stuff on and in anything to make themselves look and feel younger. We are obsessed with what we look like. Our family get to go on holiday to Cape Town. We were at a place called the West Coast National Park. If you ever go to Cape Town, you should go there. It's beautiful. Lacquer beaches there. We were there a year and a bit ago. And I've got, a, at the time, a six-year-old son. My youngest is six. We're playing a bat and ball kind of thing on the beach. And this crowd of three, so I thought they were just like friends, rock up there. Uh, I think they were foreigners, and uh, they sit down on the beach, and it doesn't take long, and the, the one lady has like, lost most of her clothes. Not all of her clothes. I made a mistake this morning in telling the story, but she's lost most of her clothes. She's in like a very, very um, thin, lean bikini. One of those things where you think, like, do you actually pay money for this thing? They've used so little material in the manufacturing of this thing. This should be almost free. This looks like packaging that you've ripped off around something that was substantial. Anyhow, she's put this on her body. She is now fawning all over the sand. She's doing all these exotic kind of poses. And the one sidekick is taking pictures at all kinds of different angles and stuff. And uh, what would happen is that after every picture, she would come over and have a look at what it looked like and berate the cameraman for how, you know, improvements and whatever else. And then she'd go back and there we are. And I'm, I'm trying with my son and he's like looking at this going on. And he's, his neck is craning every time I'm trying to get near, in front of him and like, hey, son, let's, let's, let's go for a swim. Now. Let's turn. You face me. Let's build the sandcastle. And he's just interested in what's going on because it got weirder and weirder. She started like crawling across the sand there, you know, and doing all these poses, and I was like, oh, Lord Jesus, just please, would you send a wave or something over these people? We ended up having a long discussion, debriefing this experience and helping him understand, like, there are some people in the world who they'll spend an hour and a half at the beach just to get that perfect shot to put out into the world that this is what they like because they're influencers or, well, I don't know what they are, and for the likes and stuff, they're obsessed with what you look like. And it's not just the weirdos on the beach who do that. We're all a bit like that. We're obsessed with what people and ourselves look like, but not just physical. We, we're concerned about behavioral appearance. And how do you come across to people? How virtuous do you appear to be? Do you retweet the right things about the right causes? Do you get upset about the right things? Do you appear to pee? Do you behave in a way that uh, has gives off the appearance of the right character? Brennan Manning, who wrote a book 
called the Ragamuffin Gospel, said this, the temptation of the age is to look good without being good. The temptation of the age is to look good without being good. We're obsessed with how we appear behaviorally to others. Whether or not there's anything of substance deep in us is inconsequential. We want to appear to others to be good. But it gets more and more complicated, especially for those who follow Jesus, because it seeps its way into our relationship with God and the way we are at church. It's important to appear to be spiritually mature, alive, robust, engaged, loving Jesus, having your stuff together. And I know that this isn't in the culture of this church. This is a broader Christian problem where as Christians we have become professionals at pretending. We have become experts at putting it out there that we have our stuff together, that we are, we're like, we're great. You ask another Christian, most Christians, how they're doing? They're doing great, blessed, excited, love the, love the Lord, whatever. It's so hard. It's so hard to get to a place with other believers where you're past the pretending and you have a comfort level and they have a comfort level where you are now engaging and you're conversing about how you're really doing and what's really going on in your life. And I'm not going to advocate that you should shout that and trumpet it from the rooftops, but I do want to encourage you that if you are not in, and I think this is an ideal kind of church that you can be a part of this kind of a community, if you are not in a community where you can really be who you really are, that you make it a priority to seek out a place like that. Because that is the message of the gospel, is that it frees us to be who we really are. Not to stay who we really are, but to come front and center with, this is really what is going on in my life. This is really what's going in my heart. This is really what the Lord wants to deal with. And people can love you as you really are, not as you pretend to be. Those are the people God transforms, is the people who come to a level of honesty with who they really are. The gospel begins to transform. As long as you pretend and put up an appearance and a show, you will forever be stuck in pretending. Matthew 15 Verse 7, Jesus takes aim at these hypocrites and he says, You hypocrites, as I was right about when you, and he, right about you when he prophesied about you, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. May it never be said about you or about us or about Grace London, this is a people that honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. They go through all the motions. It looks it looks like a vibrant Christian community, but all you need to do is dig and you will see a people whose hearts are nowhere. Friends, it starts and you make progress by just being honest or what's really going on. But the problem is that we're so wrapped up in how we appear to others, how we appear, how we come across. And we put on a show even for the Lord. Look at me, Lord. He's like, what, are you, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I know you. Don't come with that. <laughs> it's not impressive to pretend with the Lord or to pretend with others. The joy and the freedom of the gospel is that you own who you are. 
And you bring that to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a mess. I need help. I'm stuck with this. I keep falling over this. I'm not who I want to be. I'm not who you want me to be, Lord. I'm a mess. I I need a savior. You don't don't need a self-improvement plan. You need a savior. You need to be forgiven and made new and refreshed and loved and satisfied and strengthened. All of those things come from honest people who live their lives in transparency, who walk in the light, say, yeah, Lord, you know me fully. And you're a part of a community that say, we know you and we love you. We're not rejecting you because you don't have your stuff together. It's the people who, who don't have their stuff together that you should be pulling closer to say, we'll walk with you. We'll carry you. We'll journey. We'll take you to Jesus when you can't walk there yourself. We will bear burdens with you. We will love you to maturity in Jesus. We're obsessed with appearance. How does the Lord see? Very simply, he sees to the heart. He sees to the heart. Paul Tripp says that the heart is the controlling center of who you are. It's not like a side section of you. You have body and heart. Basically, it's a summary. When you see the words heart in scripture, it's like that's you. That's who you are. And the Lord sees through all the pretending, all the appearance, he sees to the heart. We get stuck. We can't see. We're not the Lord. We get, we get stuck on appearance. We can't see. I, I don't know your real motives, your real thoughts and intentions of your heart, but the Lord sees. He's not stuck at the, any outward appearance or pretending. He can see straight through. And what does the Lord see in David? What does the Lord see in David? Well, when Paul's preaching in Acts 13, <coughs> Verse 32, he says, as after removing Saul, he raised up David as their king and and God testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. A man after my own heart. Now, it'd be easy to just end there and be like, isn't that so moving? Be more like David. Do that. Like, Be more like a man after his own heart carrying out and doing all of God's will. And if you know enough of the story of the life of David, you know that he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man after his neighbor's wife. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to be flippant, and I don't want to denigrate the character of David. I just want to put before you that the Bible paints a very complicated and real and messy picture about anyone who's not Jesus Christ. And say you can have a heart, you can at the same time have a heart that goes after God and a heart that goes after your neighbor's wife. And we are complicated, messy people. And what it should do is cause us to run to God. To run to God and say, God, would you give me an undivided heart? A heart that longs to fear you and to love you and to walk in your ways. Because you will remain until Christ comes or calls for you a complicated person whose heart has other loves and wanders quickly, often away from him and delights in other things that will do damage to you and be dishonoring to God. And that renders you in need of forgiveness and a savior and the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. David's prayer in Psalm 86 Verse 11, he says this, teach me, O Lord, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart 
to fear your name. Another translation says, give me an undivided heart to fear your name. Don't, Lord, please don't let my heart just chase this, this, this. Part of me is this, part of me. Is this. this is what happens, isn't it? You're here tonight worshiping. Oh, Lord, we love you in Christ alone. I, don't, I can't remember the songs that we sang. There was one new song there. It's wonderful, isn't it, to pour out our hearts and to love the Lord. You know what's going to happen? Before you go to bed tonight, your heart is going to hanker after other things. It's going to ha- that love of other things is going to rise up in you. We're complicated people. Friends, I want to urge you and push you. The joy and the message of the gospel is that God gives you a new heart as you come to faith in him. A heart that can um, love him. And it's soft and it can be shaped by God and it can long for him. But we are still caught in this fallenness and this fallen world. And those loving desires for other things is going to stay with us. And we need to camp out in the presence of God at his feet saying, Lord, would you help me? Would you give me an undivided heart that would fear your name? Would you give me the grace and the help and the empowering of the spirit that I would love you more than I love you now? That I long for you more than I long for you now. When I don't long for you, that I would long for you because when I long for other things, it goes pear-shaped. It's not good for me. What does the Lord see in your heart tonight? Only you know the answer to that. The Holy Spirit can reveal those things as we come to communion. I want to pray for us now. And I want to remind you of these things. That some of you are still stuck with grief and disappointment around what the Lord has allowed to happen in your life. I want to encourage you to not leave this evening without having an honest conversation with the Lord around where your heart is in those things and crying out to him for his grace and his mercy over you to help you to move forward. How long will you grieve? Some of you are afraid of the next step of obedience that the Lord will put courage in you to take that step of obedience regardless of what it costs you regardless that you would weigh it up to say obedience is better than any sacrifice than anything else obeying the lord is the best possible thing for us and that we would come to the lord again this evening and we would come to the person of jesus who is our substitute and is the one who loves us and say lord you know our hearts you know us you see through all the nonsense and you love us and you call us to yourself again this evening would you give us undivided hearts that love you and fear you? And would you strengthen us to be people who pursue you with everything that we have in the strength and the power of the Spirit?